Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Card, A Story of Adventure in the Five Towns By Arnold Bennett Chapter 1 The Dance 1. Edward Henry Machin first saw the smoke on the 27th of May, 1867, in Broom Street, Bursley, the most ancient of the five towns. Broom Street runs down from St. Luke's Square straight into the Shropshire Union Canal, and consists partly of buildings known as pot-banks, until they come to be sold by auction, when auctioneers describe them as extensive earthenware manufactories, and partly of cottages, whose highest rent is four and six a week. In such surroundings was an extraordinary man born. He was the only anxiety of a widowed mother, who gained her livelihood and his by making up ladies' own materials in ladies' own houses. Mrs. Machin, however, had a speciality apart from her vocation. She could wash flannel with less shrinking than any other woman in the district and she could wash fine lace without ruining it. Thus, often she came to sew, and remained to wash. A somewhat gloomy woman, thin, with a tongue. But I liked her. She saved a certain amount of time every day by addressing her son as Denry, instead of Edward Henry. Not intellectual, not industrious, Denry would have maintained the average dignity of labour on a pot-bank, had he not, at the age of twelve, won a scholarship from the board school to the endowed school. He owed his triumph to audacity rather than learning, and to chance rather than design. On the second day of the examination, he happened to arrive in the examination room ten minutes too soon for the afternoon sitting. He wandered about the place, exercising his curiosity, and reached the master's desk. On the desk was a tabulated form, with names of candidates and the number of marks achieved by each in each subject of the previous day. He had done badly in geography, and saw seven marks against his name in the geographical column out of a possible thirty. The figures had been written in pencil. The pencil lay on the desk. 
He picked it up, glanced at the door, and at the rows of empty desks, and wrote a neat two in front of the seven. Then he strolled innocently forth and came back late. His trick ought to have been found out. The odds were against him, but it was not found out. Of course it was dishonest, yes, but I will not agree that Denry was uncommonly vicious. Every schoolboy is dishonest by the adult standard. If I knew an honest schoolboy, I would begin to count my silver spoons. All is fair between schoolboys and schoolmasters. This dazzling feat seemed to influence not only Denry's career, but also his character. He gradually came to believe that he had won the scholarship by genuine merit, and that he was a remarkable boy, and destined to great ends. His new companions, whose mothers employed Denry's mother, also believed that he was a remarkable boy. But they did not forget, in their gentlemanly way, to call him washerwoman. Happily, Denry didn't mind. He had a thick skin, and fair hair, and bright eyes, and broad shoulders, and the jolly gaiety of his disposition developed daily. He did not shine at the school. He failed to fulfil the rosy promise of the scholarship. But he was not stupider than the majority, and his opinion of himself, having once risen, remained at set fair. It was inconceivable that he should work in clay with his hands. 2. When he was sixteen, his mother, by operations on a yard and a half of Brussel Point lace, put Mrs. Emery under an obligation. Mrs. Emery was the sister of Mr. Duncalf. Mr. Duncalf was town clerk of Bursley, and a solicitor. It is well known that all bureaucracies are honeycombed with intrigue. Denry Machin left school to be a clerk to Mr. Duncalf, on the condition that within a year he should be able to write shorthand at a rate of a hundred and fifty words a minute. In those days mediocre and incorrect shorthand was not a drug on the market. He complied, more or less, and decidedly less than more, with the condition, and for several years he really thought that he had nothing further to hope for. Then he met the Countess. The Countess of Chell was born of poor but picturesque parents and she could put her finger on her great-grandfather's grandfather. Her mother gained her livelihood and her daughters by allowing herself to be seen a great deal with humbler but richer people's daughters. The countess was brought up to matrimony. She was aimed and timed to hit a given mark at a given moment. She succeeded. She married the Earl of Chell. She also married about twenty thousand acres in England, about a fifth of Scotland, a house in Piccadilly, seven country seats, including Snaid, a steam-yacht, and five hundred thousand pounds' worth of shares in the Midland Railway. She was young and pretty. She had travelled in China, and written a book about China. She sang at charity concerts, and acted in private theatricals. She sketched from nature. She was one of the great hostesses of London." and she had not the slightest tendency to stoutness. All this did not satisfy her. She was ambitious. She wanted to be taken seriously. She wanted to enter into the life of the people. She saw in the quarter of a million souls that constitute the five towns a unique means to her end, an unrivalled toy. 
and she determined to be identified with all that was most serious in the social progress of the five towns. Hence, some fifteen thousand pounds were spent in refurbishing Snade Hall, which lies on the edge of the five towns, and the Earl and Countess passed four months of the year there. Hence the Earl, a mild retiring man, when invited by the town council to be the ornamental mayor of Bursley, accepted the invitation. Hence the mayor and mayoress gave an immense afternoon reception to practically the entire role of burgesses. And hence, a little later, the mayoress let it be known that she meant to give a municipal ball. The news of the ball thrilled Bursley more than anything had thrilled Bursley since the signing of the Magna Carta. Nevertheless, balls had been offered by previous mayoresses. One can only suppose that in Bursley there remains a peculiar respect for land, railway stock, steam yachts, and great-grandfather's grandfather. Now, everybody of account had been asked to the reception, but everybody could not be asked to the ball, because not more than two hundred people could dance in the town hall. There were nearly thirty-five thousand inhabitants of Bursley, of whom quite two thousand counted, even though they did not dance. Three. Three weeks and three days before the ball, Denry Machin was seated one morning alone in Mr. Duncalf's private offices in Duck Square, where he carried on his practice as a solicitor, when in stepped a tall and pretty young woman, dressed very smartly, but soberly in dark green. On the desk in front of Denry were several wide sheets of abstract paper, concealed by a copy of that morning's Athletic News. Before Denry could even think of reversing the positions of the abstract paper and the athletic news, the young woman said, "'Good morning,' in a very friendly style. She had a shrill voice and an efficient smile. "'Good morning, madam,' said Denry. "'Mr. Duncalf in?' asked the young woman, brightly. "'Why should Denry have slipped off his stool? It's utterly against etiquette.' for solicitous clerks to slip off their stools while answering inquiries. "'No, madam, he's across at the town hall,' said Denry. The young lady shook her head playfully, with a faint smile. "'I've just been there,' she said. "'They said he was here.' "'I dare say I could find him, madam, if you would—' She now smiled broadly. "'Conservative club, I suppose,' she said, with an air deliciously confidential. He, too, smiled. "'Oh, no,' she said, after a little pause. "'Just tell him I've called.' "'Certainly, madam. Nothing I can do?' She was already turning away, but she turned back and scrutinised his face, as Denry thought, roguishly. "'You might just give him this list,' she said, taking a paper from her satchel and spreading it. She had come to the desk. Their elbows touched.' He isn't to take any notice of the crossings out in red ink, you understand? Of course I'm relying on him for the other lists, and I expect all the invitations to be out on Wednesday. Good morning. She was gone. He sprang to the grimy window. Outside in the snow were a broom, twin horses, twin men in yellow, and a little crowd of youngsters and oldsters. She flashed across the footpath and vanished. The door of the carriage banged. One of the twins in yellow leapt up to his brother, and the whole affair dashed dangerously away. The face of the leaping twin was familiar to Denry. 
The man had, indeed, once inhabited Broom Street, being known to the street as Jock, and his mother had for long years been a friend of Mrs. Machin's. It was the first time Denry had seen the Countess, save at a distance. Assuredly she was finer even than her photographs, entirely different from what one would have expected, so easy to talk to. Yet what had he said to her? Nothing, and everything. He nodded his head, and murmured, "'No mistake about that lot,' meaning, presumably, that all that one had read about the brilliance of the aristocracy was true, and more than true. "'She's the finest woman that ever came into this town,' he murmured. The truth was that she surpassed his dreams of womanhood. At two o'clock she had been a name to him. At five minutes past two he was in love with her. He felt profoundly thankful— that, for a church tea-meeting that evening, he happened to be wearing his best clothes. It was while looking at her list of invitations to the ball that he first conceived the fantastic scheme of attending the ball himself. Mr. Duncalf was fussily and deferentially managing the machinery of the ball for the Countess. He had prepared a little list of his own, of people who ought to be invited. Several aldermen had been requested to do the same. There were thus about half a dozen lists to be combined into one. Denry did the combining. Nothing was easier than to insert the name of E. H. Machin inconspicuously towards the centre of the list. Nothing was easier than to lose the original lists inadvertently, so that if a question arose as to any particular name, the responsibility for it could not be ascertained without inquiries too delicate to be made. On Wednesday... Denry received a lovely Bristol board, stating in copperplate that the Countess desired the pleasure of his company at the ball, and on Thursday his name was ticked off as one who had accepted. 4. He had never been to a dance. He had no dress suit, and no notion of dancing. He was a strange, inconsequent mixture of courage and timidity. You and I are consistent in character— we are either one thing or the other. But Denry Machin had no consistency. For three days he hesitated, and then, secretly trembling, he slipped into Shillitoe's, the young tailor who had recently set up, and who was gathering together the jeunesse dorée of the town. "'I want a dress suit,' he said. Shillitoe, who knew that Denry only earned eighteen shillings a week, replied with only superficial politeness that a dress-suit was out of the question. He had already taken more orders than he could execute without killing himself. The whole town had uprisen as one man and demanded a dress-suit. "'So you're going to the ball, are you?' said Shillitoe, trying to condescend, but in fact slightly impressed. "'Yes,' said Denry. "'Are you?' Shillitoe started and then shook his head. "'No time for balls,' said he. "'I can get you an invitation, if you like,' said Denry, glancing at the door, precisely as he had glanced at the door before adding two to seven. "'Oh!' Shillitoe cocked his ears. He was not a native of the town, and had no alderman to protect his legitimate interests. "'To cut a shameful story short,' In a week, Denry was being tried on. Shillitoe allowed him two years' credit. 
The prospect of the ball gave an immense impetus to the study of the art of dancing in Bursley, and so put quite a nice sum of money into the pockets of Miss Earp, a young mistress in that art. She was the daughter of a furniture dealer with a passion for the bankruptcy court. Miss Earp's evening classes were attended by Denry, but none of his money went into her pocket. She was compensated by an expression of the Countess's desire for the pleasure of her company at the ball. The Countess had aroused Denry's interest in women as a sex. Ruth Earp quickened the interest. She was plain, but she was only twenty-four, and very graceful on her feet. Denry had one or two strictly private lessons from her in reversing. She said to him one evening, when he was practising reversing, and they were entwined in the attitude prescribed by the latest fashion, "'Never mind me. Think about yourself. It's the same in dancing as it is in life. The woman's duty is to adapt herself to the man.' He did think about himself. He was thinking about himself in the middle of the night, and about her, too. There had been something in her tone, her eye. At the final lesson he inquired if she would give him the first waltz at the ball. She paused, and then said, Yes. 5. On the evening of the ball, Denry spent at least two hours in the operation which was necessary before he could give the Countess the pleasure of his company. This operation took place in his minute bedroom at the back of the cottage in Broom Street, and it was of a complex nature. Three weeks ago he had innocently thought that you had only to order a dress-suit, and there you were. He now knew that a dress-suit is merely the beginning of anxiety. Shirt, collar, tie, studs, cufflinks, gloves, handkerchief. He was very glad to learn authoritatively from Shillitoe that handkerchiefs were no longer worn in the waistcoat opening, and that men who so wore them were barbarians, and the truth was not in them. Thus an everyday handkerchief would do. Boots. Boots were the rock on which he had struck. Shillitoe, in addition to being a tailor, was a hosier, but by some flaw in the scheme of the universe, hosiers do not sell boots. Except boots, Denry could get all he needed on credit. Boots he could not get on credit, and he could not pay cash for them. Eventually he decided that his church boots must be dazzled up to the level of this great secular occasion. The pity was that he forgot, not that he was of a forgetful disposition in great matters, he was simply over-excited. He forgot to dazzle them up, until after he had fairly put his collar on, and his necktie in a bow. It was imprudent to touch blacking in a dress-shirt, so Denry had to undo the past and begin again. This hurried him. He was not afraid of being late for the first waltz with Miss Ruth Earp, but he was afraid of not being out of the house before his mother returned. Mrs. Machin had been making up a lady's own materials all day, naturally, the day being what it was. If she had had twelve hands instead of two, she might have made up the own materials of half a dozen ladies instead of one, and earned twenty-four shillings instead of four. Denry did not want his mother to see him ere he departed. He had lavished an enormous amount of brains and energy to the end of displaying himself in this refined and novel attire to the gaze of two hundred persons, and yet his secret wish was to deprive his mother of the beautiful spectacle.
However, she slipped in, with her bag and her seamy fingers, and her rather sardonic expression, at the very moment when Denry was putting on his overcoat in the kitchen, there being insufficient room in the passage. He did what he could to hide his shirt-front, though she knew all about it, and failed. "'Bless us!' she exclaimed briefly, going to the fire to warm her hands. A harmless remark but her tone seemed to strip bare the vanity of human greatness. "'I'm in a hurry,' said Denry, importantly, as if he was going forth to sign a treaty involving the welfare of nations. "'Well,' said she, "'happen you are, Denry, but the kitchen-table's no place for boot-brushes.' He had one piece of luck. It froze. Therefore, no anxiety about the condition of boots. Six. The Countess was late, some trouble with the horse. Happily the Earl had been in Bursley all day, and had dressed at the Conservative Club, and his lordship had ordered that the programme of dances should be begun. Denry learnt this as soon as he emerged, effulgent from the gentleman's cloak-room, into the broad, red-carpeted corridor which runs from end to end of the ground-floor of the town-hall. Many important townspeople were chatting in the corridor, the innumerable Swetnam family, the Stanways, the great Etches, the Fernses, Mrs. Clayton Vernon, the Suttons, including Beatrice Sutton. Of course, everyone knew him for Duncast's shorthand clerk and the son of the flannel washer, but universal white kid gloves constitute a democracy, and Shillitoe could put more style into a suit than any other tailor in the five towns. How do? The eldest of the Swetnam boys nodded carelessly. "'How do, Swetnam?' said Denry, with equal carelessness. The thing was accomplished. That greeting was like a Masonic initiation, and henceforth he was the peer of no matter whom. At first he had thought that four hundred eyes would be fastened on him, their glance saying, "'This youth is wearing a dress-suit for the first time, and it is not paid for either.' but it was not so. And the reason was that the entire population of the town hall was heartily engaged in pretending that never in its life had it been seen after seven o'clock of a night, apart from a dress-suit. Denry observed with joy that while numerous middle-aged and awkward men wore red or white silk handkerchiefs in their waistcoats, such peoples as Charles Ferns, the Swetnams, and Harold Etches did not. He was then, in the shyness of his handkerchief, on the side of the angels. He passed up the double staircase, decorated with white or pale frocks of unparalleled richness, and so into the grand hall. A scarlet orchestra was on the platform, and many people strolled about the floor in attitudes of expectation. The walls were festooned with flowers. The thrill of being magnificent seized him and he was drenched in a vast desire to be truly magnificent himself. He dreamt of magnificence, and boot-brushes kept sticking out of this dream like black mud out of snow. In his reverie he looked about for Ruth Earp, but she was invisible. Then he went downstairs again, idly, gorgeously feigning that he spent six evenings a week in ascending and descending monumental staircases appropriately clad, he was determined to be as sublime as anyone. There was a stir in the corridor, 
and the sublimest consented to be excited. The Countess was announced to be imminent. Everybody was grouped round the main portal, careless of temperatures. Six times was the Countess announced to be imminent, before she actually appeared, expanding from the narrow gloom of her black carriage like a magic vision. Alderman received her, and they did not do it with any excess of gracefulness. They seemed afraid of her, as though she were recovering from influenza, and they feared to catch it. She had precisely the same high voice, and precisely the same efficient smile, as she had employed to Denry. And these instruments worked marvels on Alderman. They were as melting as salt on snow. The Countess disappeared upstairs in a cloud of shrill apologies and trailing Alderman. She seemed to have greeted everybody except Denry. Somehow he was relieved that she had not drawn attention to him. He lingered, hesitating, and then he saw a being in a long yellow overcoat, with a bit of peacock's feather at the summit of a shiny high hat. This being held a lady's fur mantle. Their eyes met. Denry had to decide instantly. He decided. "'Hello, Jock,' he said. "'Hello, Denry,' said the other, pleased. "'What's been happening?' Denry inquired, friendly. Then Jock told him about the antics of one of the Countess's horses. He went upstairs again, and met Ruth Earp coming down. She was glorious in white. Except that nothing glittered in her hair, she looked the very equal of the Countess, at a little distance, plain though her features were. "'What about that waltz?' Denry began informally. "'That waltz is nearly over.' said Ruth Earp, with chilliness. "'I suppose you've been staring at her ladyship with all the other men.' "'I'm awfully sorry,' he said. "'I didn't know the waltz was—' "'Well, why didn't you look at your programme?' "'Haven't got one,' he said naively. He had omitted to take a programme. Ninny! Barbarian! "'Better get one,' she said cuttingly, somewhat in her role of dancing mistress. "'Can't we finish the waltz?' he suggested, crestfallen. "'No,' she said, and continued her solitary way downwards. She was hurt. He tried to think of something to say that was equal to the situation, and equal to the style of his suit, but he could not. In a moment he heard her below him greeting some male acquaintance in the most effusive way. Yet if Denry had not committed a wicked crime for her— she could never have come to the dance at all. He got a programme, and with terror gripping his heart, he asked sundry young and middle-aged women whom he knew by sight and by name for a dance. Ruth had taught him how to ask. Not one of them had a dance left. Several looked at him as much as to say, "'You must be a goose to suppose that my programme is not filled up in the twinkling of my eye.' Then he joined a group of despisers of dancing near the main door. Harold Etches was there, the wealthiest manufacturer of his years, barely twenty-four, in the five towns. Also Shillitoe, cause of another of Denry's wicked crimes. The group was taciturn, critical, and very doggish. The group observed that the Countess was not dancing. The Earl was dancing, need it be said with Mrs. Joss Courtney second wife of the deputy mayor. But the countess stood resolutely smiling, surrounded by aldermen. Possibly she was getting her breath. Possibly nobody had the pluck to ask her. 
Anyway, she seemed to be stranded there, on a beach of aldermen. Very wisely she had brought with her no members of a house-party from Sneyd Hall. Members of a house-party at a municipal ball invariably operate as a bar between greatness and democracy, and the Countess desired to participate in the life of the people. "'Why don't some of those Johnnies ask her?' Denry burst out. He had hitherto said nothing in the group, and he felt that he must be a man with the rest of them. "'Well, you go and do it. It's a free country,' said Shillito. "'So I would for two pins,' said Denry. Harold Etches glanced at him, apparently resentful of his presence there. Harold Etches was determined to put the extinguisher on him. "'I'll bet you a fiver you don't,' said Etches scornfully. "'I'll take you,' said Denry very quickly, and very quickly walked off. Seven. She can't eat me, she can't eat me. That was what he said to himself as he crossed the floor. People seemed to make a lane for him, divining his incredible intention. If he had not started at once, if his legs had not started of themselves, he would never have started, and, not being in command of a fiver, he would afterwards have cut a preposterous figure in the group. But started he was, like a piece of clockwork that could not be stopped. In the grand crises of his life, something not himself, something more powerful than himself, jumped up in him and forced him to do things. Now, for the first time, he seemed to understand what had occurred with him in previous crises. In a second, so it appeared, he had reached the Countess. Just behind her was his employer, Mr. Duncalf, whom Denry had not previously noticed there. Denry regretted this, for he had never mentioned to Mr. Duncalf that he was coming to the ball, and he feared Mr. Duncalf. "'Could I have this dance with you?' he demanded bluntly, but smiling and showing his teeth. "'No ceremonial title, no mention of pleasure or of honour, not a trace of the formula in which Ruth Earp had instructed him. He forgot all such trivialities.' "'I've won that fiver, Mr. Harold Etches,' he said to himself. The mouths of Alderman inadvertently opened. Mr. Duncalf blenched. "'It's nearly over, isn't it?' said the Countess, still efficiently smiling. She did not recognise Denry. In that suit he might have been a foreign office attaché. "'Oh, that doesn't matter, I'm sure,' said Denry. She yielded, and he took the paradisical creature in his arms. It was her business that evening to be universally and inclusively polite. She could not have begun with a refusal. A refusal might have dried up all other invitations whatsoever. Besides, she saw that the alderman wanted a lead. Besides, she was young, though a countess, and adored dancing. Thus they waltzed together, while the flower of Bursley's chivalry gazed in enchantment. The countess's fan depending from her arm, dangled against Henry's suit in rather a confusing fashion, which withdrew his attention from his feet. He laid hold of it gingerly between two unemployed fingers. After that he managed fairly well. Once they came perilously near the Earl and his partner, nothing else. And then the dance ended, exactly when Denry had begun to savour the astounding spectacle of himself enclasping the Countess. The Countess had soon perceived that he was the merest boy. "'You waltz quite nicely,' she said, like an aunt, 
but with more than an aunt's smile. "'Do I?' he beamed. Then something compelled him to say, "'Do you know it's the first time I've ever waltzed in my life, except in a lesson, you know?' "'Really?' she murmured. "'You pick things up easily, I suppose?' "'Yes,' he said. "'Do you?' Either the question or the tone sent the Countess off into carillons of amusement. Everybody could see that Denry had made the Countess laugh tremendously. It was on this note that the waltz finished. She was still laughing when he bowed to her, as taught by Ruth Earp. He could not comprehend why she had laughed, save on the suspicion that he was more humorous than he had suspected. Anyhow, he laughed too, and they parted laughing. He remembered that he had made a marked effect though not one of laughter, on the tailor by quickly returning the question, "'Are you?' And his unpremeditated stroke with the Countess was similar. When he had got ten yards on his way towards Harold Etches and a fiver, he felt something in his hand. The Countess's fan was sticking between his fingers. It had unhooked itself from her chain. He furtively pocketed it. 8. "'Just the same as dancing with any other woman.' He told this untruth in reply to a question from Shillitoe. It was the least he could do. And any other young man in his place would have said as much, or as little. "'What was she laughing at?' somebody asked. "'Ah,' said Denry judiciously, "'wouldn't you like to know?' "'Here are,' said Etches, with an inattentive, plutocratic gesture, handing over a five-pound note." He was one of those men who never venture out of sight of a bank without a banknote in their pockets, because you never know what might turn up. Denry accepted the note with a silent nod. In some directions he was gifted with astounding insight, and he could read in the faces of the haughty males surrounding him that in the space of a few minutes he had risen from nonentity into renown. He had become a great man. He did not at once realise how great, how renowned, but he saw enough in those eyes to cause his heart to glow, and to rouse in his brain those ambitious dreams which stirred him upon occasion. He left the group. He had need of motion, and also of that mental privacy which one may enjoy while strolling about on a crowded floor, in the midst of a considerable noise. He noticed that the Countess was now dancing with an alderman, and that the alderman, by an oversight inexcusable in an alderman, was not wearing gloves. It was he, Denry, who had broken the ice, so that the alderman might plunge into the water. He first had danced with the countess, and had rendered her up to the alderman with delicious gaiety upon her countenance. By instinct he knew Bursley, and he knew that he would be talked of. He knew that, for a time at any rate, he would displace even Jos Curtney that almost professional card and amuser of Burgesses in the popular imagination. It would not be, Have you heard Joss's latest? It would be, Have you heard about young Machin, Duncalf's clerk? Then he met Ruth Earp, strolling in the opposite direction, with a young girl, one of her pupils, of whom all he knew was that her name was Nellie, and that this was her first ball, a childish little thing with a wistful face, he could not decide whether to look at Ruth or to avoid her glance. She settled the point by smiling at him in a manner that could not be ignored. "'Are you going to make it up for me for that waltz you missed?' said Ruth Earp. She pretended to be vexed and stern, but he knew that she was not. "'Or is your programme full?' 
she added. "'I should like to,' he said simply. "'But perhaps you don't care to dance with us poor ordinary people, now you've danced with the Countess,' she said, with a certain lofty and bitter pride. He perceived that his tone had lacked eagerness. "'Don't talk like that,' he said, as if hurt. "'Well,' she said, "'you can have the supper-dance.' He took her programme to write on it. "'Why,' he said, "'there's a name down here for the supper-dance. "'Herbert, it looks like.' "'Oh,' she replied carelessly, "'that's nothing. Cross it out.' So he crossed Herbert out. "'Why don't you ask Nellie here for a dance?' said Ruth Earp. And Nellie blushed. He gathered that the possible honour of dancing with the supremely great man had surpassed Nellie's modest expectations. "'Can I have the next one?' he said. "'Oh, yes,' Nellie timidly whispered. "'It's a polka, and you aren't very good at polking, you know,' Ruth warned him. "'Still, Nellie will pull you through.' Nellie laughed in silver. The naive child thought that Ruth was trying to joke at Denry's expense. Her very manifest joy and pride in being seen with the unique Mr. Machin, in being the next after the Countess to dance with him, made another mirror in which Denry could discern the reflection of his vast importance. At the supper, which was worthy of the hospitable traditions of the Chell family, though served standing up in the police court, he learnt all the gossip of the dance from Ruth Earp, among other things that more than one young man had asked the Countess for a dance, and had been refused, though Ruth Earp, for her part, declined to believe that aldermen and councillors had utterly absorbed the Countess's programme. Ruth hinted that the Countess was keeping a second dance open for him, Denry. When she asked him squarely if he meant to request another from the Countess, he said no, positively. He knew when to let well alone, a knowledge which is more precious than a knowledge of geography. The supper was the summit of Denry's triumph. The best people spoke to him without being introduced, and lovely creatures mysteriously and intoxicatingly discovered that programmes which had been crammed two hours before were not, after all, quite full. "'Do tell us what the Countess was laughing at?' This question was shot at him at least thirty times. He always said he would not tell. And one girl, who had danced with Mr. Stanway, who had danced with the Countess, said that Mr. Stanway had said that the Countess would not tell either. Proof here that he was being extensively talked about. Towards the end of the festivity, the rumour floated abroad that the Countess had lost her fan. The rumour reached Denry, who maintained a culpable silence. But when all was over, and the Countess was departing, he rushed down after her, and in a dramatic fashion, which demonstrated his genius for the effective, he caught her exactly as she was getting into her carriage. "'I've just picked it up,' he said, pushing through the crowd of worshippers. "'Oh, thank you so much,' she said. And the Earl also thanked Denry. And then the Countess, leaning from the carriage, said, with archness in her efficient smile, "'You do pick things up easily, don't you?' And both Denry and the Countess laughed without restraint, and the pillars of Bursley society were mystified." Denry winked at Jock as the horses poured away, and Jock winked back. The envied of all, Denry walked home, thinking violently. At a stroke he had become possessed of more than he could earn from Duncalf in a month. The faces of the Countess, of Ruther, and of the timid Nellie 
mingled in exquisite hallucinations before his tired eyes. He was inexpressibly happy. Trouble, however, awaited him. End of chapter 1This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Card, A Story of Adventure in the Five Towns By Arnold Bennett Chapter 2 The Widow Hullins' House one. The simple fact that he, first of all the citizens in Bursley, had asked the Countess for a dance, and not been refused, made a new man of Denry Machin. He was not only regarded by the whole town as a fellow wonderful and dazzling, but he so regarded himself. He could not get over it. He had always been cheerful, even to optimism. He was now in a permanent state of calm, assured jollity. He would get up in the morning with song and dance. Bursley and the general world were no longer Bursley and the general world. They had been mysteriously transformed into an oyster, and Denry felt strangely that the oyster-knife was lying about somewhere handy, but just out of sight, and that presently he should spy it and seize it. He waited for something to happen, and not in vain. A few days after the historic revelry, Mrs. Codlin called to see Denry's employer. Mr. Duncalf was her solicitor, a stout, breathless, and yet muscular woman of near sixty, the widow of a chemist and druggist, who had made money before limited companies had taken the liberty of being pharmaceutical. The money had been largely invested in mortgage on cottage property. The interest on it had not been paid, and latterly Mrs. Codlin had been obliged to foreclose, thus becoming the owner of some seventy cottages. Mrs. Codlin, though they brought her in about twelve pounds a week gross, esteemed these cottages an infliction, a bugbear, an affront, and a positive source of loss. Invariably she talked as though she would be willing to present them to anyone who cared to accept, and be glad to be rid of them. Most owners of property talk thus. She particularly hated paying the rates on them. Now, there had recently occurred, under the direction of the borough surveyor, a revaluation of the whole town. This may not sound exciting, yet a revaluation is the most exciting event, save a municipal ball given by a titled mayor, that can happen in any town. If your house is rated at forty pounds a year, and the rates are seven shillings in the pound, and the revaluation lifts you up to forty-five pounds, it means thirty-five shillings a year right out of your pocket, which is the interest on thirty-five pounds. And if the revaluation drops you to thirty-five pounds, it means thirty-five shillings in your pocket, which is a box of Havanas or a fancy waistcoat. Is not this exciting? And there are seven thousand houses in Bursley. Mrs. Codlin hoped that her rateable value would be reduced she based the hope chiefly on the fact that she was a client of Mr. Duncalf, the town clerk. The town clerk was not the borough surveyor, and had nothing to do with the revaluation. 
Moreover, Mrs. Codlin presumably entrusted him with her affairs because she considered him an honest man. And an honest man could not honestly have sought to tickle the borough surveyor out of the narrow path of rectitude in order to oblige a client. Nevertheless, Mrs. Codlin thought that because she patronised the town clerk, her rates ought to be reduced. Such is human nature in the provinces, so different from human nature in London, where nobody ever dreams of offering even a match to a municipal official, lest the act might be construed into an insult. It was on a Saturday morning that Mrs. Codlin called to impart to Mr. Duncalf the dissatisfaction with which she had learnt the news, printed on a bit of bluish paper, that her rateable value, far from being reduced, had been slightly augmented. The interview, as judged by the clerks through a lath-and-plaster wall, and by means of a speaking-tube, atoned by its vivacity for its lack of ceremony. When the stairs had finished creaking under the descent of Mrs. Codlin's righteous fury, Mr. Duncalf whistled sharply twice. Two whistles meant Denry. Denry picked up his shorthand notebook and obeyed the summons. "'Take this down,' said his master, rudely and angrily just as though Denry had abetted Mrs. Codlin, just as though Denry was not a personage of high importance in the town, the friend of countesses, and a shorthand clerk only on the surface. Do you hear? Yes, sir. Madam. Hitherto it had always been a dear madam, or dear Mrs. Codlin. Madam, of course I need hardly say that if, after our interview this morning, and your extraordinary remarks, you wish to place your interests in other hands— I shall be most happy to hand over all the papers, on payment of my costs. Yours truly. To Mrs. Codlin. Denry reflected. Ass! Why doesn't he let her cool down? Also, he's got hands and hand in the same sentence. Very ugly. Shows what a temper he's in. Shorthand clerks are always like that. Hypercritical. Also, well, I jolly well hope she does chuck him. Then I shan't have those rents to collect. Every Monday, and often on Tuesday too, Denry collected the rents of Mrs. Codlin's cottages. An odious task for Denry. Mr. Duncalf, though not affected by its odiousness, deducted seven and a half per cent for the job from the rents. "'That'll do,' said Mr. Duncalf. But as Denry was leaving the room, Mr. Duncalf called out with formidable brusqueness, "'Machin!' "'Yes, sir?' In a flash, Denry knew what was coming. He felt sickly that a crisis had supervened with the suddenness of a tidal wave. And for one little second, it seemed to him that to have danced with the Countess while the flower of Bursley's chivalry watched in envious wonder was not, after all, the key to the door of success throughout life. Undoubtedly he had practised fraud in sending to himself an invitation to the ball— Undoubtedly he had practised fraud in sending invitations to his tailor and his dancing-mistress. On the day after the ball, beneath his great glory, he had trembled to meet Mr. Duncalf's eye, lest Mr. Duncalf should ask him, "'May Chin, what were you doing at the town hall last night, behaving as if you were the Shah of Persia, the Prince of Wales, and Henry Irving?' But Mr. Duncalf had said nothing, and Mr. Duncalf's eye had said nothing, and Denry thought that the danger was past. Now it surged up. "'Who invited you to the mayor's ball?' demanded Mr. Duncalf, like thunder. Yes, there it was, 
and a very difficult question. "'I did, sir,' he blundered out. "'Transparent veracity. He simply could not think of a lie. "'Why?' "'I thought that you had perhaps forgotten to put my name down on the list of invitations, sir.' "'Oh!' this grimly. "'And I suppose you thought I'd also forgotten to put down that tailor chap, Shillitoe.' So it was all out. Shillitoe must have been chattering. Denry remembered that the classic established tailor of the town, Hatterton, whose trade Shillitoe was getting, was a particular friend of Mr. Duncalf's. He saw the whole thing. "'Well,' persisted Mr. Duncalf, after a judicious silence from Denry. Denry, sheltered in the castle of his silence, was not to be tempted out. "'I suppose you rather fancy yourself dancing with your betters?' growled Mr. Duncalf menacingly. "'Yes,' said Denry. "'Do you?' "'He'd not meant to say it. The question slipped out of his mouth. He had recently formed the habit of retorting swiftly upon people who put queries to him, "'Yes, are you?' or "'No, do you?' The trick of speech had been enormously effective with Shillitoe, for instance, and with the Countess. He was in the process of acquiring renown for it. Certainly it was effective now. Mr. Duncalf's dance with the Countess had come to an ignominious conclusion in the middle, Mr. Duncalf preferring to dance on skirts rather than on the floor, and the fact was notorious. "'You can take a week's notice,' said Mr. Duncalf pompously. It was no argument, but employers are so unscrupulous in an altercation. "'Oh, very well,' said Denry, and to himself he said, "'Something must turn up now.' He felt dizzy at being thus thrown on the world, he who had been meditating the propriety of getting himself elected to the stylish and newly established sports club at Hillport. He felt enraged, for Mr. Duncalf had only been venting on Denry the annoyance induced in him by Mrs. Codlin. But it is remarkable that he was not depressed at all. No, he went about with songs and whistling, though he had no prospects except starvation or living on his mother. He traversed the street in his grand new manner, and his thoughts ran, "'What on earth can I do to live up to my reputation?' However, he possessed intact the five-pound note won from Harold Etches in the matter of the dance. 2. Every life is a series of coincidences. Nothing happens that is not rooted in coincidence. All great changes find their cause in coincidence. Therefore I shall not mince the fact that the next change in Denry's career was due to an enormous and complicated coincidence. On the following morning both Mrs. Codlin and Denry were late for service at St. Luke's Church. Mrs. Codlin by accident and obesity, Denry by design. Denry was later than Mrs. Codlin, whom he discovered waiting in the porch. That Mrs. Codlin was waiting is an essential part of the coincidence. Now, Mrs. Codlin would not have been waiting if her pew had not been right at the front of the church, near the choir, nor would she have been waiting if she had been a thin woman, and not given to breathing loudly after a hurried walk. She waited partly to get her breath, and partly so that she might take advantage of a hymn or psalm to gain her seat without attracting attention. If she had not been late, if she had not been stout, if she had not had a seat under the pulpit, if she had not had an objection to making herself conspicuous, 
she would already have been in the church, and Denry would not have had a private colloquy with her. "'Well, you're nice people, I must say,' she observed, as he raised his hat. She meant Duncalf, and all Duncalf's myrmidons. She was still full of her grievance. The letter which she had received that morning had startled her, and even the shadow of the sacred edifice did not prevent her from referring to an affair that was more suited to Monday than to Sunday morning. A little more, and she would have snorted. "'Nothing to do with me, you know,' Denry defended himself. "'Oh,' she said, "'you're all alike, and I tell you this, Mr. Machin, I'd take him at his word if it wasn't that I don't know who else I could trust to collect my rents. I've heard such tales about rent-collectors. I reckon I shall have to make my peace with him.' "'Why?' said Denry. "'I'll keep on collecting your rents for you, if you like.' "'You?' "'I've given him notice to leave,' said Denry. "'The fact is, Mr. Duncalf and I don't hit it off together.' Another procrastinator arrived in the porch, and by a singular simultaneous impulse, Mrs. Codlin and Denry fell into the silence of the overheard, and wandered forth together among the graves. There, among the graves, she eyed him. He was a clerk at eighteen shillings a week, and he looked it. His mother was a seamstress, and he looked it. The idea of neat but shabby Denry and the mighty Duncalf not hitting it off together seemed excessively comic. If only Denry could have worn his dress-suit at church. It vexed him exceedingly that he had only worn that expensive dress-suit once, and saw no faintest hope of ever being able to wear it again. "'And what's more,' Denry pursued, "'I'll collect them for five per cent, instead of seven and a half per cent. Give me a free hand, and see if I don't get better results than he did.' "'And I'll settle accounts every month, or week, if you like, instead of once a quarter, like he does.' The bright and beautiful idea had smitten Denry like some heavenly arrow. It went through him, and pierced Mrs. Codlin with equal success. It was an idea that appealed to the reason, to the pocket, and to the instinct of revenge. Having revengefully settled the hash of Mr. Duncalf, they went into church. No need to continue this part of the narrative— even the text of the rector's sermon has no bearing on the issue. In a week there was a painted board affixed to the door of Denry's mother. E. H. Machin, rent-collector and estate agent. There was also an advertisement in The Signal, announcing that Denry managed estates, large or small. 3. The next crucial event in Denry's career happened one Monday morning, in a cottage that was very much smaller even than his mother's. This cottage, part of Mrs. Codlin's multitudinous property, stood by itself in Chapel Alley, behind the Wesleyan Chapel. The majority of the tenements were in Carpenter's Square, near too. The neighbourhood was not distinguished for its social splendour, but existence in it was picturesque, varied, exciting, full of accidents— as existence is apt to be in residences that cost their occupiers an average of three shillings a week. Some persons referred to the quarter as a slum, and ironically insisted on its adjacency to the Wesleyan Chapel, as though that were the Wesleyan Chapel's fault. Such people did not understand life and the joy thereof. The solitary cottage had a front yard, about as large as a blanket, surrounded by an insecure brick wall, and paved with mud. 
You went up two steps, pushed at a door, and instantly found yourself in the principal reception-room, which no earthly blanket could possibly have covered. Behind this chamber could be seen obscurely an apartment so tiny that an auctioneer would have been justified in terming it bijou. Furnished simply but practically with a slopstone, also the beginnings of a stairway. The furniture of the reception-room comprised two chairs and a table, one or two saucepans and some antique crockery. What lay at the upper end of the stairway no living person knew, save the old woman who slept there. The old woman sat at the fireplace, all bunched up, as they say, in the five towns. The only fire in the room, however, was in the short clay pipe which she smoked. Mrs. Hullins was one of the last old women in Bursley to smoke a cutty, and even then the pipe was considered coarse, and cigarettes were coming into fashion, though not in Chapel Alley. Mrs. Hullins smoked her pipe, and thought about nothing in particular. Occasionally some vision of the past floated through her drowsy brain. She had lived in that residence for over forty years. She had brought up eleven children and two husbands there. She had coddled thirty-five grandchildren there, and given instruction to some half-dozen daughters-in-law. She had known midnights when she could scarcely move in that residence without disturbing somebody asleep. Now she was alone in it. She never left it, except to fetch water from the pump in the square. She had seen a lot of life, and she was tired. Denry came unceremoniously in, smiling gaily and benevolently, with his bright, optimistic face under his fair brown hair. He had large and good teeth. He was getting, not stout, but plump. "'Well, mother,' he greeted Mrs. Hullins, and sat down on the other chair. A young fellow obviously at peace with the world, a young fellow content with himself for the moment, no longer a clerk, one of the employed, saying sir to persons with no more fingers and toes than he had himself, bound by servile agreement to be in a fixed place at fixed hours, an independent unit, master of his own time and his own movements. In brief, a man. The truth was that he earned now in two days a week slightly more than Mr. Duncalf paid him for the labour of five and a half days. His income as collector of rents and manager of estates, large or small, totalled about a pound a week. But he walked forth in the town, smiled, joked, spoke vaguely, and said, "'Do you?' to such a tune that his income might have been guessed to be anything from ten pounds a week to ten thousand a year.' and he had four days a week in which to excogitate new methods of creating a fortune. "'I've not for you,' said the old woman, not moving. "'Come, come now, that won't do,' said Denry. "'Have a pinch of my tobacco.' She accepted a pinch of his tobacco, refilled her pipe, and he gave her a match. "'I'm not going out of this house without half a crown at any rate,' said Denry blithely. And he rolled himself a cigarette, possibly to keep warm was very chilly in this stuffy residence, but the old woman never shivered. She was one of those old women who seemed to wear all the skirts of all their lives, one over the other. "'You're here for the better part of some time, then,' exclaimed Mrs. Hullins, looking facts in the face. "'I've told you about my son Jack. He's been playing.' "'Out of work. Six weeks. He starts today, and he'll give me some at Saturday.' "'That won't do,' said Denry, curtly and kindly. 
He then, with his bluff benevolence, explained to Mother Hollins that Mrs. Codlin would stand no further increase of arrears from anybody, that she could not afford to stand any further increase of arrears, that her tenants were ruining her, and that he himself, with all his cheery goodwill for the rent-paying classes, would be involved in her fall. Six and forty years have I been here in this house,' said Mrs. Hollins. "'Yes, I know,' said Denry. "'And look at what you owe, Mother.' It was with immense good-humoured kindliness that he invited her attention to what she owed. She tacitly declined to look at it. "'Your children ought to keep you,' said Denry, upon her silence. "'Them as is dead can't,' said Mrs. Hullins. "'And them as is alive has their own to keep, except Jack.' "'Well, then, it's bailiffs,' said Denry, but still cheerfully. "'Nay, nay, ye'll none turn me out.' Denry threw up his hands, as if to exclaim, "'I've done all I can, and I've given you a pinch of tobacco. Besides, you oughtn't to be here alone. You ought to be with one of your children.' There was more conversation, which ended in Denry's repeating with sympathetic resignation, "'No, you'll have to get out. It's bailiffs.' Immediately afterwards he left the residence with a bright filial smile and then in two minutes he popped his cheerful head in at the door again. "'Look here, mother,' he said, "'I'll lend you half a crown, if you like.' Charity beamed on his face, and genuinely warmed his heart. "'But you must pay me something for the accommodation,' he added. "'I can't do it for nothing. "'You must pay me back next week, and give me threepence. "'That's fair. "'I couldn't bear to see you turned out of your house. "'Now get your rent-book.' and he marked half a crown as paid in her greasy, dirty rent-book, and the same in his large book. "'Eh, hey, you're a queer un, Mr. Machin,' murmured the old woman as he left. He never knew precisely what she meant. Fifteen, twenty years later in his career, her intonation of that phrase would recur to him and puzzle him. On the following Monday, everybody in Chapel Alley and Carpenter Square seemed to know that the inconvenience of bailiffs and eviction could be avoided by arrangement with Denry the philanthropist. He did quite a business, and having regard to the fantastic nature of the security, he could not well charge less than threepence a week for half a crown. That was about forty per cent a month, and five hundred per cent per annum. The security was merely fantastic. But nevertheless he had his remedy against evildoers. He would take what they paid him for rent, and refuse to mark it as rent, appropriating it to his loans, so that the fear of bailiffs was upon them again. Thus, as the good genius of Chapel Alley and Carpenter's Square, saving the distressed from the rigours of the open street, rescuing the needy from their tightest corners, keeping many a home together, when but for him it would have fallen to pieces, always smiling, jolly, sympathetic, and picturesque, Denry at length employed the five-pound note won from Harold Etches. A five-pound note, especially a new and crisp one as this was, is a miraculous fragment of matter, wonderful in the pleasure which the sight of it gives, even to millionaires. But perhaps no five-pound note was ever so miraculous as Denry's. Ten per cent per week, compound interest mounts up, it ascends, and it lifts. Denry never talked precisely, but the town soon began to comprehend that he was a rising man, a man to watch. 
the town admitted that so far he had lived up to his reputation as a dancer with countesses the town felt that there was something indefinable about denry denry himself felt this he did not consider himself clever or brilliant but he considered himself peculiarly gifted he considered himself different from other men his thoughts would run anybody but me would have knuckled down to duncalf and remained a shorthand clerk for ever who but me would have had the idea of going to the ball and asking the countess to dance and then that business with the fan who but me would have had the idea of taking his rent collecting off duncalf who but me would have had the idea of combining these loans with the rent collecting it's simple enough it's just what they want and yet nobody ever thought of it till i thought of it and he knew of a surety that he was that most admired type in the bustling industrial provinces a card four the desire to become a member of the sports club revived in his breast and yet celebrity though he was rising though he was he secretly regarded the sports club at hillport as being really a bit above him the sports club was the latest and greatest phenomenon of social life in bursley and it was emphatically the club to which it behoved the golden youth of the town to belong to denry's generation the conservative club and the liberal club did not seem like real clubs they were machinery for politics and membership carried nearly no distinction with it but the sports club had been founded by the most dashing young men of hillport which is the most aristocratic suburb of bursley and set on a lofty eminence the sons of the wealthiest earthenware manufacturers made a point of belonging to it and after a period of disdain their fathers also made a point of belonging to it it was housed in an old mansion with extensive grounds and a pond and tennis courts it had a working agreement with the golf club and with the hillport cricket club but chiefly it was a social affair the correctest thing was to be seen there at nights rather late than early and an exact knowledge of card games and billiards was worth more in it than prowess on the field it was a club in the pall mall sense of the word and denry still lived in insignificant broom street and his mother was still a seamstress these were apparently insurmountable truths all the men whom he knew to be members were somehow more dashing than denry and it was a question of dash few things are more mysterious than dash denry was unique knew himself to be unique he had danced with a countess and yet these other fellows yes there are puzzles baffling puzzles in the social career in going over on tuesdays to hanbridge where he had a few trifling rents to collect denry often encountered harold etches in the tram-car at that time etches lived at hillport and the principal etches manufactory was at hanbridge etches partook of the riches of his family and though a bachelor was reputed to have the spending of at least a thousand a year he was famous on summer sundays on the pier at landudno in white flannels he had been one of the originators of the sports club he spent far more on clothes alone than denry spent in the entire enterprise of keeping his soul in his body at their first meeting little was said they were not equals and nothing but dress suits could make them equals however even a king could not refuse speech with a scullion whom he had allowed to win money from him and etches and denry chatted feebly 
Bit by bit they chatted less feebly, and once, when they were almost alone on the car, they chatted with vehemence during the complete journey of twenty minutes. "'He isn't so bad,' said Denry to himself of the dashing Harold Etches, and he took a private oath that at his very next encounter with Etches he would mention the sports club, just to see. This oath disturbed his sleep for several nights, but with Denry an oath was sacred. Having sworn that he would mention the club to Etches, he was bound to mention it. When Tuesday came, he hoped that Etches would not be on the tram, and the coward in him would have walked to Hanbridge instead of taking the tram. But he was brave, and he boarded the tram, and Etches was already in it. Now that he looked at it close, the enterprise of suggesting to Harold Etches that he, Denry, would be a suitable member of the sports club at Hillport, seemed in the highest degree preposterous. Why, he could not play any games at all. He was a figure only in the streets. Nevertheless, the oath. He sat awkwardly silent for a few moments, wondering how to begin. And then Harold Etches leaned across the tram to him and said, "'I say, Machin, I've several times meant to ask you, why don't you put up for the sports club? It's really very good, you know.' Denry blushed quite probably for the last time in his life, and he saw with fresh clearness how great he was and how large he must loom in the life of the town. He perceived that he had been too modest. 5. You could not be elected to the sports club all in a minute. There were formalities, and that these formalities were complicated and took time is simply a proof that the club was correctly exclusive and worth belonging to. When at last Denry received notice from the secretary and steward that he was elected to the most sparkling fellowship in the five towns, he was positively afraid to go and visit the club. He wanted some old and experienced member to lead him gently into the club and explain its usages and introduce him to the chief habitués or else he wanted to slip in unobserved while the heads of clubmen were turned. And then he had a distressing shock. Mrs. Codlin took it into her head that she must sell her cottage property. Now Mrs. Codlin's cottage property was the backbone of Denry's livelihood, and he could by no means be sure that a new owner would employ him as rent-collector. A new owner might have the absurd notion of collecting rents in person. Vainly did Denry exhibit to Mrs. Codlin rows of figures showing that her income from the property had increased under his control. Vainly did he assert that from no other form of investment would she derive such a handsome interest. She went so far as to consult an auctioneer. The auctioneer's idea of what could constitute a fair reserve price shook, but did not quite overthrow her. At this crisis it was— that Denry happened to say to her, in his new large manner, "'Why, if I could afford, I'd buy the property off you myself, just to show you.' He did not explain, and he did not perhaps know himself what had to be shown. She answered that she wished to goodness he would. Then he said wildly that he would, in instalments, and he actually did buy the widow Hullins half a crown a week cottage for forty-five pounds, of which he paid thirty pounds in cash, and arranged that the balance should be deducted gradually from his weekly commission. He chose the widow Hullins because it stood by itself, an odd piece, as it were, chipped off from the block of Mrs. Codlin's realty. 
The transaction quietened Mrs. Codlin, and Denry felt secure, because she could not now dispense with his services without losing her security for fifteen pounds. He still thought in these small sums, instead of thinking in thousands. He was now a property owner. Encouraged by this great and solemn fact, he went up one afternoon to the club at Hillport. His entry was magnificent, superficially. No one suspected that he was nervous under the ordeal. The truth is that no one suspected, because the place was empty. The emptiness of the hall gave him pause. He saw a large framed copy of The Rules, hanging under a deer's head, and he read them as carefully as though he had not got a copy in his pocket. Then he read the notices, as though they had been the latest telegrams from some dire seat of war. Then, perceiving a massive open door of oak—the clubhouse had once been a pretty stately mansion—he passed through it, and saw a bar, with bottles, and a number of small tables, and wicker chairs, and on one of the tables an example of the Staffordshire signal, displaying in vast letters the fearful question, "'Is your skin troublesome?' Denry's skin was troublesome. It crept. He crossed the hall, and went into another room, which was placarded, Silence. And silence was. And on a table, with copies of The Potter's World, The British Australasian, The Iron Trades Review, and The Golfer's Annual, was a second copy of the signal, again demanding of Denry, in vast letters, whether his skin was troublesome. Evidently the reading-room. He ascended the stairs, and discovered a deserted billiard-room with two tables. Though he had never played at billiards, he seized a cue. But when he touched them, the balls gave such a resounding click in the hush of the chamber, that he put the cue away instantly. He noticed another door, curiously opened it, and started back at the sight of a small room, and eight middle-aged men, mostly hatted, playing cards in two groups. They had the air of conspirators, but they were merely some of the finest solo whist-players in Bursley. This was before Bridge had quitted Pall Mall. Among them was Mr. Duncalf. Denry shut the door quickly. He felt like a wanderer in an enchanted castle, who had suddenly come across something that ought not to be come across. He returned to earth, and in the hall met a man in shirt-sleeves, the secretary and steward, a nice, homely man, who said in the accents of ancient friendship, though he had never spoken to Denry before, "'Is it Mr. Machin? Glad to see you, Mr. Machin. Come and have a drink with me, will you? Give it a name.' Saying which, the secretary and steward went behind the bar, and Denry imbibed a little whisky and much information. "'Anyhow, I've been,' he said to himself, going home. Six. The next night he made another visit to the club, about ten o'clock. The reading-room, that haunt of learning, was as empty as ever, but the bar was full of men, smoke, and glasses. It was so full that Denry's arrival was scarcely observed. However, the secretary and steward observed him, and soon he was chatting with a group at the bar, presided over by the secretary and steward's shirt-sleeves. He glanced around, and was satisfied. It was a scene of dashing gaiety and worldliness that did not belie the club's reputation. Some of the most important men in Bursley were there. Charles Ferns, the solicitor, who practised at Hanbridge, was arguing vivaciously in a corner. Ferns lived at Bleakridge, and belonged to the Bleakridge Club, 
and his presence at Hillport, two miles from Bleakridge, was a dramatic tribute to the prestige of Hillport's club. Ferns was apparently in one of his anarchistic moods. Though a successful businessman who voted right, he was pleased occasionally to uproot the fabric of society and rebuild it on a new plan of his own. Tonight he was inveighing against landlords. He, who by conveyancing, kept a wife and family and a French governess for the family, in rather more than comfort. The Ferns's French governess was one of the seven wonders of the five towns. Men enjoyed him in these moods, and as he raised his voice, so he enlarged the circle of his audience. "'If the by-laws of this town were worth a bilberry,' he was saying, "'about a thousand so-called houses would have to come down to-morrow.' Now, there's that old woman I was talking about just now, Hullins. She's a Catholic, and my governess is always slumming about among Catholics. That's how I know. She's paid half a crown a week for pretty near half a century, for a hovel that isn't worth eighteen pence. Now she's going to be pitched into the street because she can't pay any more. And she's seventy if she's a day. And that's the basis of society. Nice refined society, eh?' "'Who's the grasping owner?' someone asked. "'Old Mrs. Codlin,' said Ferns. "'Here, Mr. Machin, they're talking about you,' said the secretary and steward, genially. He knew that Denry collected Mrs. Codlin's rents. "'Mrs. Codlin isn't the owner,' Denry called out across the room, almost before he was aware what he was doing. There was a smile on his face and a glass in his hand. "'Oh,' said Ferns, "'I thought she was. Who is?' Everybody looked inquisitively at the renowned Machin, the new member. "'I am,' said Denry. He had concealed the change of ownership from the widow Hullins. In his quality of owner, he could not have lent her money, in order that she might pay it instantly back to himself. "'I beg your pardon,' said Hearns, with polite sincerity. "'I'd no idea.' He saw that unwittingly he had come near to committing a gross outrage on club etiquette. "'Not at all,' said Denry. "'But suppose the cottage was yours. "'What would you do, Mr. Ferns? "'Before I bought the property I used to lend her money myself to pay her rent.' "'I know,' Ferns answered, with a certain dryness of tone. "'It occurred to Denry that the lawyer knew too much. "'Well, what should you do?' he repeated obstinately. "'She's an old woman,' said Ferns, "'and honest enough, you must admit.' She came up to see my governess, and I happened to see her. "'But what should you do in my place?' Denry insisted. "'Since you ask, I should lower the rent and let her off the arrears,' said Ferns. "'And suppose she didn't pay then? Let her have it rent-free because she's seventy? Or pitch her into the street?' "'Oh, well, Ferns would make her a present of the blooming house and give her a conveyance free,' a voice said humorously, and everybody laughed. "'Well, that's what I'll do,' said Denry. "'If Mr. Ferns will do the conveyance free, "'I'll make her a present of the blooming house. "'That's the sort of grasping owner I am.' "'There was a startled pause. "'I mean it,' said Denry firmly, even fiercely, "'and raised his glass. "'Here's to the widow Hullins.' "'There was a sensation, "'because, incredible though the thing was, "'it had to be believed.' Denry himself was not the least astounded person in the crowded, smoky room. To him it had been like somebody else talking, not himself. 
But as always, when he did something crucial, spectacular, and effective, the deed had seemed to be done by a mysterious power within him, over which he had no control. This particular deed was quixotic, enormously unusual, a deed assuredly without precedent in the annals of the five towns. And he, Denry, had done it. The cost was prodigious, ridiculously, and dangerously beyond his means. He could find no rational excuse for the deed. But he had done it, and men again wondered. Men had wondered when he led the Countess out to waltz. That was nothing to this. What, a smooth-chinned youth giving houses away? out of mere mad impulsive generosity. And men said, on reflection, "'Of course, that's just the sort of thing Machin would do.' They appeared to find a logical connection between dancing with a countess and tossing a house or so to a poor widow. And the next morning, every man who had been in the sports club that night was remarking eagerly to his friends, "'I say, have you heard young Machin's latest?' And Denry, inwardly aghast at his own rashness, was saying to himself, "'Well, no one but me would ever have done that.' He was now not simply a card. He was THE card. End of chapter 2 Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.